0: Um, before we really start to get into the exact passage before us, most of you that are familiar with your Bibles know that the the book of Acts is written by Luke, so it's kind of like the Gospel of Luke, the sequel, okay? Part two. And in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke establishes the intention or the purpose of his writing. And he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. I want you to stop and think about that phrase for just a second so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. It strikes me that in today, in America, we live in an increasingly skeptical culture. The traditions on which we were raised, the things that we believe in, are all in question now. There's a thing called moral relativism, which allows people to have their own truths instead of absolute truth. And so what we've got to do is we've got to, if we are going to become a great commission church, if we are going to fulfill the commandment that was given to us by the Lord himself to go and make disciples of all the nations, one of the things that we've got to be able to do is we've got to be able to make our message relevant and powerful to the people that we're communicating with. And that world out there that so many of us have known for so long is changing at a very, very rapid pace. Right now, the latest data suggests that the millennials, the people born after the year 2000, the youth of our country, only 46% recognize the divinity of Jesus Christ. Only 68% recognize the historicity of that person. And of those few that believe that he did exist or was in fact who he claimed to be, they're about to go off to college, and college is going to do everything that they possibly can to challenge those beliefs and to try to destroy them. When I was trying to look up the, uh, the data on this thing, you know, percentage of Americans that believe in Jesus. I got Barna, and the second search result was the American atheists. What do people believe about Jesus? American atheists. The American atheists have done a pretty good job knocking a hole in the divinity of Jesus. I want to tell you right now they're after the historicity of Jesus. They're trying to make people believe. They're trying to make the argument that Jesus never existed. That he should be relegated to the category of Mother Earth. Figment of our imagination. And so the challenge of meeting a culture where everything's in flux, nothing can be believed, nothing can be trusted, there is no absolute, is very similar to the world that the first apostles went out to evangelize to. Multiple gods, confusion, all kinds of stuff. And so I think it's worth looking at this book of the story of the early church as kind of a primer for how do we approach a hostile culture. And one of the things that I think is very, very important, and I think it's very, very foundational, and I think it's kind of sometimes missed, in verse 3 of the first chapter of Acts, after his suffering, he showed himself to this men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. You see, the most important thing in the history of the world, the focal, the, 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 the focal point of history, the, 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 the thing that divides history in half, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing that happened before it, nothing that has happened since it, is as profound on what is going to happen in your eternity and mine. And so Luke begins his gospel with this reminder that Christ gave many convincing proofs. And I know I'm talking to a a lot of people that have been raised in the church their entire life. And you have believed in Jesus your entire life. You believed He's who He said He was. You never had a reason or a question to doubt it. But you go outside of these walls and there are people that do not accept what you believe. And so you're going to have to offer them many convincing proofs if you're going to be able to plant a seed that may ultimately, through the power of the Holy Spirit, persuade them that Jesus is who he says he is. And so Luke begins his gospel, you know, he talks about what Jesus did, he talks about the fact that he was resurrected and he ascended, and he talks about Jesus gave us many convincing proofs. Now, in the NIV, they translate that word convincing. In the King James Version, in the New King James Version, they use the word infallible. As in, irrefutable. As in, uncontestable. As in, demonstrably true. Proof by its nature suggests that it's the truth, right? And so what we've got is we've got someone out there today who we are seeking to impact on behalf of the Lord, not for our glory, but for His, because we can't do it. You're going to need proof, and thank God that Jesus gave us proof. As a matter of fact, He gave us many proofs. You see, The importance of the resurrection of Christ cannot be overemphasized. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And I personally have never known anybody that's been resurrected in person. Right? And so when you start talking about something that nobody has ever seen, how do you get them to understand it, much less believe it? Well, we can be thankful that our Gospels and our records are full of many infallible proofs. To begin with, they begin... With the appearances of Christ. Now stop and think about something. Let's just. Because one of the most fascinating books I have ever read. Is the case for Christ. And in that book. Lee Strobel. uh, A a non-believer. Sets out to disprove. The divinity of Christ. And through the process of doing that research. He becomes convinced that the proof is so great that Jesus must be who he said he was, converts to the faith, and is now a pastor at one of the largest churches in the United States. Written several bestsellers. Very, very, very compelling. He was an investigative journalist. He went and he sought the facts for himself. And one of the things that you'll see is that anytime time... There's a testimony. It needs to be corroborated with another testimony. The two got to kind of sync up. And so if you look at what the, the, the facts are for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have no fewer than 11 documented appearances with corroboration inside and outside the Bible itself. First of y'all, you have to Mary Magdalene. We see it described in in Mark's Gospel in chapter 16, verses 9-11. to John expanded on the story in his Gospel, giving us more details. That clearly, Mary saw Jesus and talked with Him. We also get that Jesus appeared to the women that were with Mary, that went to go and purify the body. We see that in Matthew 28. And they touched Jesus, and they worshipped him. One of the big things that people are going to tell you is he didn't really reappear, it's just a vision. Well, you can't touch somebody that's just a vision. I saw this in a movie. You put somebody that's just a vision, and your hand goes right through them, right? We also have in Mark and Luke the account of two of Jesus' followers who after the devastation of the crucifixion were walking to their homes on a road to a place called Emmaus. And those of you that are familiar with that story know know that a man comes alongside of them and begins to talk to them and ask them why they're so upset. And they tell him, how, dude, have you not heard what's going on around here? We thought this Jesus was the one. And now he's dead. And they say that on the journey, Jesus begins to reveal to them throughout the breadth of Scripture how this must come to pass and how Jesus had to be this person, go through this process, And then as they share the bread, all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute. This is Jesus, right? You got Mary Magdalene. You got the women that were with her. You got Cleopas and his buddy on the road to Emmaus. You got Peter. Alone. It's reported in two different places in the Gospel of Luke after the story of the road to Emmaus in verse chapter 24, verses 33 and 35, that they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem after they realized who Jesus was. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what happened on the way, how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. How important is it that Jesus would go and meet with Simon independently, individually after the promise that Peter had made to Jesus the night before he was crucified? I will never deny you. And yet three times he did. I can just see Peter can't even bring himself to be with the other disciples. He's off by himself and broken. And Jesus, knowing that he needed to be restored before he could even go back and talk to the others, right, appears to Simon in person. It's also mentioned by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, or Simon, or Peter. Can you imagine having that many different names? And into the 12. We get the picture and we get the story confirmed again in a couple of different gospel accounts of Jesus' first appearance with the disciples themselves, right? But Thomas wasn't there. And so when Thomas comes in, all the disciples are going, dude, we've seen the Lord. He's going, you know what? You guys must be smoking crack or something. I don't think it says that in there. I just kind of inferred that. Because you're seeing things that don't exist. And unless I see for myself, and I can put my hand into his wounds, I will not believe. And then we have the account where Jesus appears to the apostles with Thomas present. And Thomas makes the statement, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Thomas, for you have seen and you have believed. But blessed are they who will believe without seeing. And it's the power of these stories, it's the power of these appearances that make us begin. They build a case for us. When we talk about Jesus, he appears to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Remember the big fishing story at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 21. He appeared to at least 500 people. Paul records it in his epistle to the Corinthians. It may have been in Galilee where Jesus went up there. That may have been where he gave the Great Commission. That may have been where he ascended into heaven. But we hear many, many, many times about Jesus appearing to one person, to groups of people, to as many as 500 people. And it's not just in one place. It's not just one person's testimony. There's multiple testimonies to these facts. And perhaps most compelling to James Remember James? Jesus' half-brother? The one who didn't believe in him? The one who tried to send him away? The one who doubted his, you know, you grow up with a kid all your life, you're going to find out, you know, all all kinds of reasons not to believe everything he says, right? Anybody other than me have a brother? Absolutely, absolutely, truly believe every word your brother ever uttered to you? I'm not buying it but Jesus half brother James during his ministry during his miracles doubted that Jesus could be the Christ and yet after Jesus died he appeared to his brother James and James was converted we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 7 Paul is telling the story, and he says, then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles. And then we see a James that's turned around. In John chapter 7, we see that even his brothers did not believe in Jesus. But by the time you get to Acts chapter one verse fourteen, they all joined together. They being the apostles, constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Something changed James' opinion. During the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples again. And they studied with Him for days and days and days as He taught from the Scripture. And He gives them a new commission. He says, you are the witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you to what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been closed with power from on high. And finally, we know that there were those who were present at his ascension into glory. It's recorded in the Mark's Gospel. It is recorded in both of Dr. Luke's books. And again, I think it's important that you keep in mind what is the purpose. An orderly account from eyewitnesses of the things that you have been told so that you may know with certainty the things you have been taught. I think it's worth noting that every single one of these accounts were written down during the lives of the witnesses whose testimony was being recorded. Which means that if there was a counter-testimony, right? If there was somebody to cross-examine, if somebody had a different story, those would have come up. And if the truth wins, if everything that we're reading about all these stories were fabrications, the church would have never gotten out of the first century because the truth would have overwhelmed the fabrications. Yet try as they may, the people who were against Christ, the Pharisees, the priests... The teachers of the law, the scribes, and the Romans could not keep this message down. When it comes to powerful proofs, persuasive proofs, you have the testimony of the disciples themselves. First of all, you got the nature of their testimony. They're not going back to some esoteric verse that they pulled out of 2 Chronicles. They're using empirical data, things that they have experienced, people that they have encountered, observations that they have made in real time. These are real. It's testimony. And I think it's important to note here that each of them had to be convinced themselves. They wouldn't take the testimony of others. (coughs) When Mary sees Jesus and she races back to where the twelve are hidden in a room, they don't believe her. Everybody remember that part? So they send Peter and John. And I love the part in John's Gospel where he just points out, oh, by the way, that he got there first. Because he's a little faster than Peter. Got a better 40 time, right? And John gets there first, and they see that the grave's empty. And they see that the head, you know, the headpiece is folded and laid on on the table. And they race back to tell the others. And what do the others say? we're not going to believe you either. They would not take the testimony of others. They had to encounter Jesus themselves because what they're talking about is so incredible, so otherworldly, so impossible that they had to see it for themselves to be able to believe it. We talked about Thomas. Thomas comes in, and now there's 11 babbling Hebrew idiots going, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas goes, I I haven't. Unless I see for myself, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus shows up. They would not accept the testimony of others. They experienced it for themselves, and they recorded it. They saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, they touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus, they drank with Jesus, they studied under him. And there is no way that this many different appearances to such diverse groups ranging from one or two people to up to 500 people could be the collective figment of somebody's imagination. The second thing that we can look at with regard to the nature of the testimony of the, of the apostles is the way their lives were transformed. We know that immediately after the crucifixion that they were devastated, they were broken, they were in hiding, they were fearful. And yet, something happened. And within two months, they are in the temple court praising and proclaiming Jesus right in the very face of the priests who had him killed. That's a radical shift in behavior. They were fearful to fearless. A guy by the name of Pinchas Lapide in, in an article in Time Magazine in the, about 1980 says that if the t- disciples were totally disappointed and on the verge of desperate flight because of the very real reason of the crucifixion, then it would take another very real reason in order to transform them from a band of disheartened and dejected Jews into the most self-confident missionary society in world history. The way that their lives are transformed is powerful evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. Another testimony is the fact that they taught others to live holy lives and that they lived their own lives in a way that was impeccable. They lived not to seek to please people, but rather to seek to please God and to be be honest to the mission that they had been given by Jesus. And the question you gotta ask yourself is, does this sound like a people who are trying to propagate a lie? And perhaps most compelling of all, their personal sacrifices. The apostles didn't get any of the things that you would think of in a human world for their efforts. No, none of the motivators that make, they weren't becoming wealthy, they weren't becoming powerful, they weren't becoming popular, they weren't becoming famous. Matter of fact, they were persecuted. The apostles endured a ton of suffering. Rejection, humiliation, imprisonment, torture, and all but one of them died a martyr's death because of their testimony. Even Jesus' brother James was thrown off of the temple more than 70 feet to a stone floor below, and when he survived, they clubbed him to death. Why? Why? because of his testimony uh, to Christ. So we come to a conclusion here. I I just want to, I grew up outside the church. I knew about Jesus, but I didn't believe who he was, who all you church folks said he was. I was kind of like the culture that's out there now. He may have been real, I'd be willing to grant you that. Matter of fact, it's a good starting place. 80% of all Americans, by the way, that's the lowest number in our lifetime, 80% of all Americans will agree with the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ. I would agree that, that he's probably a real person. And I would have agreed that he was either probably a fine moral person or a great teacher or a really good man. But I couldn't get all the way to Savior, God, the Christ. And it wasn't until a brother in the church started showing me these things and saying, is that something that... Sounds like regular people would do if this wasn't the truth. Jesus gave his disciples multiple reasons to believe, multiple proofs. He appeared to them many times during the 40 days. He spoke with them, ate with them, let them touch him. He met with them in groups, large and small, as well as individually. He prepared them for the mission that he was going to send them out to fulfill. And such proof was irrefutable. It was infallible for them. Consider this, not a single one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection ever recounted his testimony. Despite the pressure to do so. Pressure unto the penalty of death. They endured great hardship throughout their lives because of it, and they were willing to die for it. And because we have so many infallible proofs, we have the number of appearances, we have the nature of their testimony... We have the transformation that took place in their lives and possibly the transformation that took place in our lives. There's so much proof. And our job is to be faithful to showing people who are willing to listen what that proof is. At Caesarea Philippi, at the turning point of his ministry, Jesus asked his disciples a question. Who do the people say I am? And the disciples told him, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say the prophet. If we go and we ask our culture today, who do the people say I am? Many of them will answer a good person, a good moral leader, a great teacher. But the real question is the follow up question, and that's where he asked the disciples Who do you say that I am? And upon that question hangs the eternity of everybody ever born on this planet. Peter said, You are the Christ. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Jonah, because this did not come to you from man, but from my Father in heaven, because Simon recognized before all of the irrefutable, infallible proofs that occurred through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Ladies and gentlemen, I would love to tell you that we could go to church and that church would convert people church doesn't do anything. People convert people. People will come, aside, come alongside people, earn the right to have a relationship, ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? And in using the many convincing proofs that are provided to us in the testimonies of those who knew Him and walked with Him and died for Him, that Jesus was indeed who He claimed to be. Let's pray. Grace, Heavenly Father, Lord God, we give You thanks and praise, Father. We live in a culture... Of Thomas's, Father, I'm a Thomas. I doubt. I, I I don't believe. And yet you provide proof. You provide evidence. And Father, I pray that today you would transform those of us here. That if they do not know you as the as the Lord, the God, the Savior, that they would come to you, Lord. That they would pay attention to the abounding proof and answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say I am? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your holiness, your righteousness, your mightiness. But Lord, most of all, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, and your love as demonstrated through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior in whose name we pray.